Hebrews 8, are you there? It says, here's the main point. We have a high priest who sat down in the place of honor beside the throne of the majestic God in heaven. There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. And since every high priest is required to offer gifts and sacrifices, our high priest must make an offering too. If he were here on earth, he would not even be a priest since there already are priests to offer the gifts required by the law. They serve in a system of worship that is only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I've shown you here on the mountain. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, he said, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their minds. I'll write them on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. They will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. I'll forgive their wickedness. I will never again remember their sins. When God speaks of a new covenant, and he means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. Father in heaven, I ask that you would take some of the difficult portions of this chapter and bring them to life. And God, I ask that you would challenge us, the people of your new covenant today. I ask that you would challenge us new Testament believers in the 21st century with your word. Challenge our hearts, Lord God. We're not looking for more ways to, to conform to the world or even blend into the world. We want to be conformed to Christ. And so, Father God, challenge us to the core, to the depths of who we are, speaking deep things, Father God, as deep cries out to deep this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen, amen. You can be seated. So let's talk about some stuff this morning. Notice here the theme of shadow versus substance. Really, this is, if there's any central theme to the book of Hebrews, it's been said that it's a book of transition, a transition out of the old covenant into the new covenant. I would say shadow and substance would also be a consistent theme. How Jesus is the real version of everything that had been observed up until that point. It's what the Apostle Paul said, and I want you to see this in the book of Colossians. So if you're in Hebrews, go to the left of where you are. Go to the book of Colossians with me. Colossians 2 says in verses 16 and 17, it says, don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come and Christ himself is that reality. And so to fully understand what's being said here in Hebrews 8, 
uh, we need to understand some things about what the people practiced and what they believed before Jesus came. Because it's real important that we get this. Um, we need to understand how they saw things, what they practiced, because it all really comes down to suit to two systems. One was a copy and a shadow here on earth, and the other one, that which is real and is in heaven. So the, the copy and the shadow. You have to understand how the Israelites viewed the temple in Jerusalem. To the Israelite, the temple was where heaven and earth met. And you really need to get this because it's real important to where we're going. It was where heaven and earth met. For the Israelite to walk into the Holy of Holies was to walk into heaven itself. N.T. Wright says, The Israelites believed that the temple in Jerusalem was the place above all where heaven and earth met, quite literally. When you went into the temple, especially when, when you went into the Holy of Holies in the middle of it, you were actually going in to heaven itself. That's what the Israelite believed. That's what the Jewish believer believed before Jesus came. That when one walked into the Holy of Holies, you were walking into heaven itself. Heaven and earth met there. You were literally walking into heaven on earth. Heaven and earth met there. That's what they believed. So if the temple and its system were the copy, what's the real? What's the real? Look again at Hebrews 8 verses 5 with me. And let's begin to peel some of this apart. Hebrews 8, 5. They serve in a system of worship. Notice how the New Living words that system of worship that is only a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on this mountain. Notice the Old Testament reference of Exodus 2540. So what the earthly priests did was they served a system of worship. God, through the earthly priests in the Old Testament, set up a system of worship for them. It was a system of worship. And that's what they had. They had a system. They had a system. That Old Testament system of worship, it was a copy or shadow of the real one in heaven. The earthly priests were mediators of the copy or shadow system. The Message Bible says, these priests provide only a hint of what goes on in the true sanctuary of heaven. So there are shadows and there is substance. And even for us as believers, we have to determine whether what we believe is a shadow or whether there's actual substance to it. Well, Pastor John, how could you, you even know what shadow and what substance? How do you know if it, if it revolves around a system or the Savior? How can you know the difference? I want to offer five ways that could help you know the difference as to whether you are observing a shadow or whether there's actual substance to it. First of all, number one, is it based on a man-made tradition or biblical truth? Is it based on a man-made tradition or is it biblical truth? I was trying to think of examples of, of this. Traditions can get crazy. 
I mean, crazy. Maybe you were raised in some churches where it was just crazy. Uh, Lisa has a, a, a spiritual father um, that uh, was uh, there for her. She grew up very close to this family, and uh, he um, would do uh, photography. He'd do weddings on the side. And he said one time he was in a church and he uh, was there and he was kind of scoping out the sanctuary where the wedding was going to take place and trying to figure out where the best camera angles could be. And uh, there was a great big huge pulpit right in the middle of the, the altar. And uh, so, you know, he didn't think anything of it. He went and he grabbed the pulpit and was going to move it. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, two arms grabbed him and pulled him back. And, uh, and he looked, and it was these two guys. And he goes, hey, you know, guys, you know, great. You know, you could help me move the pulpit. They said the pulpit doesn't move. No, 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 no. I, I, I just want to move it for the wedding. We'll put it right back. The pulpit never moves. And it wasn't like it was bolted down. But the tradition in that church was that pulpit was holy. That pulpit never moved. It was where it was. It was going to stay where it is, and it's probably still staying there where it is to this day in, in that church. That's a man-made tradition. No real substance to it. Um, any, anything that is a tradition threatens truth. The Bible says the, the traditions of men make the word of God of no effect. I believe it's Matthew 15. I didn't write it down, but I believe it's in Matthew chapter 15. The traditions of men make the word of God of no effect because traditions can be so strong that they will force you to choose them over the very Bible, over the word of God. And I just want to remind you that there's no life in a tradition. might be time-honored and passed down. might be beautiful in its remembrance and its custom, but there's life in the word, not in tradition. And the more you place stock in a tradition, the more life you take away from the very word of God, which should be given preeminence. Number two, does it focus on the outward appearance or inward heart and transformation? Does it focus on the outward? So if you look like this and you dress like this and if you, you appear to be a Christian, if you, you, you in outward appearance, if, if it if it looks like it should? Or is the emph emphasis on inward transformation? 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, God doesn't look at the outward appearance, God looks upon the heart. When we place strong emphasis on the outward, we're placing strong emphasis on that which God looks at the least. God looks at, first and foremost, the heart. He looks at the heart. That's why David, in the context, was God choosing one of Jesse's sons to be the next king. That's why David was chosen in the midst of his brothers to be the next king when his brothers had the appearance and they had the bearing of kings. Even Samuel said, surely, this is the Lord's anointed. When he saw Eliab, Jesse's oldest son, and God says, don't look at him. I've refused him. I don't look at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. God looks at your heart. And just because you can snow other Christians and church members and pastors doesn't mean that you've got, going, got it going on spiritually. 
God looks at the heart. He speaks to your heart. Everything about your relationship with the living God is based on the heart. That's how you know God's speaking because he speaks to your heart. You feel it here and then you wrestle with it up here. It's the heart. It's the heart. I didn't invite Jesus into my flesh. I didn't get delivered from my flesh. I invited him into my heart. And if he's got my heart, he's got it. He's got it all. Number three, does it emphasize conformity or does it encourage change? Well, if you're going to attend this church, you're going to read this kind of Bible. You're going to sing these kind of songs. This is what we do here. This is how we do This is how we do it. No, we're not going to do that as a worship song. Um, we're, don't, Corb. Do not. I mean, I'm not even looking at you right now. Um, does it ask conformity? Or does it model change? Conform. We conform to Christ. And he's a living God. And conforming to Christ, I don't need a bunch of people that are Holy Spirit juniors, like Joyce Myers calls them, telling me how I should live. I need to be encouraged as to how I'm to live. How many people don't come to church because they're, they've been discouraged by a Christian, something a Christian said to them? You shouldn't do this or that. Well, if God can catch them, he can clean them. You know, where do, where do we miss this? Where do we miss? Let, let the Holy Spirit do all that. Just be grateful that they're coming. Be grateful that they're in the word of God. God will process all that stuff out with them. I mean, did you get upset at your, at your, at your, your three-year-old when they weren't driving a car yet? No, because you knew that it would be a bit so that they could grow into that, so that they could at least see over the steering wheel. You embrace maturity in the physical. Why wouldn't you embrace it in the spiritual? Why do we put these unrealistic burdens and weights on people. That's religious. That's not relationship. Relationship says, man, I'm glad you're a part of the family. Gotta work all that stuff out. Man, keep coming. Keep your nose in the word. Keep praying. Keep worshiping. That's what the body should be doing. But so many times we're looking down our nose as if we never went through these things. As if we never went through any kind of maturation process where we struggled with things. We're, we're looking down our nose at these people like, I cannot believe you're doing that. I cannot believe you said that. I cannot believe, and I'm sure God's saying, I can't believe you're doing that right now. We don't want people to be like us. We want them to be like Jesus. I'm not trying to get a bunch of people to be like Pastor John. Please, God's got his hands full with me. He doesn't need a bunch of me's. Are we emphasizing conformity? Or are we encouraging change? Do we want... Do we want people to embrace a process or do we want to encourage their progress? That's good stuff, Pastor John. I should probably write that down. Okay, so um, four, does it restrict or does it release a person? Is there a release or does it restrict? I mean, does it bind or does it loose? I mean, I don't know. I'm, how many people grew up in a system and I don't raise your hand, please? <laughs> Just please don't, don't raise your hand. 
How many of you grew up in a belief system where you just felt like there was a spiritual chokehold on you? Dog, I told you not to raise your hands. Um, so how do you grow in an environment like that? You just you do what you're stinking told. You don't grow. And, and you might be obedient on the outside, but you're probably not willing on the inside. How are you ever going to eat from the good of the land when the Bible says the willing and the obedient will eat from the good of the land? Doggone it, I'd... And granted, church, I'm growing and I'm maturing too, and that doesn't stop until we, until we see Jesus face to face. But if there's anything that's cringeworthy, it's when someone tries to put their personal belief system on me. I'm processing. I'm growing. I'm dealing with the areas that I need to discipline myself in. And I'm not trying to put anything from my walk on you as if I've got it all down. I'm not trying to impose that on you. I am in a relationship with the living God and encouraging all of you to be too. And if you are, then you won't struggle with authority. If you are, you'll be able to handle a little bit of correction once in a while. Because we don't want to be lawless. We don't want to be out there and lawless. And if there's ever been a day of lawlessness, man, in America, it's right now. It's getting crazy out there. Authority doesn't matter anymore from the president to the police. Christians should model. If you're a believer, then you understand authority. And isn't it amazing? The Roman centurion, when he sent his soldier, because there was a, someone that was sick in their house, Jesus said, I'll come. He goes, you don't need to come, for I too am a man under authority. I say to this one, go. He goes, this one, come. He comes. And Jesus called that Roman soldier's understanding of authority, he called it great faith. Faith understands authority. Faith doesn't buck authority. Faith understands it and is grateful for it. Whether you voted for it or not, authority is authority, and no one slips in office without God knowing. All authority is appointed by God. I'm way away from my notes, so it must be for somebody. Romans 13, read it. One of the things that will mark the last days unchurched and the Antichrist himself will be lawlessness. In fact, the Bible calls the Antichrist the man of lawlessness. The more lawless you become, the more that you buck authority. And if you tolerate that in your house, put it in check as soon as you possibly can. You do not want to raise your kids struggling with authority. I'm so sick and tired of that teacher, that coach telling me, just do what you're told. My dad grew up in a house where if you got in trouble at school, you got in trouble at home. They're trying to tell us we can't even spank our kids anymore? Am I going to sit down and reason with a will? A will needs to be broken so it can submit to another. You're not going to accomplish anything with two wills in play. Why do you think you go through some of the processes and disciplines that you do with God so that your will's broken so you'll embrace his? What the heck? Where do we get off thinking that, you know, we can just sit down and we can reason with the foolish and the immature? No, that will is broken, so it'll submit to and be protected. Know that, it's, know that they're loved. That's what God does with us. He disciplines those he loves, and so should we. Here's a thought. 
The Bible says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child and the rod of correction drives it far from him. I believe this with all of my heart. It says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. I believe where there is not loving discipline ministered and meted out, that foolishness remains. Have you ever seen foolish 30, 40, 50, 60, 70-somethings? Doing stuff that they should know better. There are times, man, when I'll scratch my head, people older than me. It's easy when you don't have hair. Go home and say, Lisa, is it me or what in the, why would they do that? Why? Just don't, it's foolish. And foolishness exists where there's not loving discipline. Foolishness exists where there's not loving discipline. Back to where in the world I was. Oh, yeah. So does it restrict or release a person? And we'll get into a, even a, a better definition of what release means here in a minute. Does it demand observance or does it produce fruit? Does it demand observance or does it produce fruit? Well, if you're going to be a part of us, if you're going to attend here, if you're going to, then this is what you're going to do. Or does it produce fruit? It's amazing in John 15, the Father doesn't prune those people that have nailed down their observances. He prunes those that are bearing fruit already. Leads me to believe that if you're not bearing fruit, then you're not even qualified to get pruned by God. Those that bear fruit, I prune so that they can bear even more fruit. You can have your observances, I want to bear fruit. Well, Pastor John, what is bearing fruit? We hear that being preached in church all the time. What is bearing fruit? Colossians 1.6 tells us it's best in the New Living. It tells us that bearing fruit is being used by God to change lives. Are you making a difference? Are you affecting change in people's lives? That's what bearing fruit is. Or are you spiritually introverted, keeping to yourself, not sharing your faith, not even really going public with your faith, and you've got your observances down? Well, I'm a believer because I do this, 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 and this. My first question would be, well, if you're a believer, then where's the fruit? Where's the fruit? Scripture says, even wisdom is known by its children. If there's healthy, there's fruit. If there's healthy, there's offspring. If there's healthy, are you tracking? Is there observance that's demanded or is there fruit being produced? Those five things, and I'll read them again for you because they won't be in your notes if you're following you version. Is it based on man-made tradition or biblical truth? Does it focus on the outward appearance or inward heart and transformation? Does it emphasize conformity or encourage change? Does it restrict or release a person? Five, does it demand observance or produce fruit? Let's go back to Hebrews. Look at 8, 6. 8, 6. 
But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood, for he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. I just want to make a real quick point. I don't want to dwell on it real, real long. But in... First Timothy 2 Timothy 2.5, yep, 2.5, it says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the mediator. I don't know what you grew up believing, but I grew up believing some stuff. I grew up believing that there were a few options for mediators in my life for God. I grew up believing that there, were, that there were priests, that there were nuns, that there was Mary, and they all were mediators between me and God, and so I could go through them. The Bible contradicts that kind of tradition. The Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You see it in 1 Peter or 1 Timothy 2.5, and then you see it again here in Hebrews 8, 6, Jesus is the mediator. There aren't a bunch of go-betweens. It gets really, really weird if we believe that. If you open up that door and you believe that there are a bunch of mediators between you and God, Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the door. Well, Pastor John, I believe that's narrow-minded. It's bigoted. To believe that there is one way. That's the way that you look at it. I look at it like I'm grateful that there is a way. And you do have choices. You can choose Jesus or you can reject Jesus. You can choose blessing. You can choose cursing. You've got choices in this. God gave you a free will. But as far as what we believe in is biblically based and sound, Jesus is the mediator. Salvation is through Christ alone. He's the mediator between God and man. Scripture supports it, backs it. And you may have been raised with tradition that says you can go through this, you can go through that, you can go through them, you can go through these. That's not what Scripture says. And what we do here at Restore Church, we base on Scripture. So if we're going to get in a tussle over the Word of God, man, be able to support it, be able to back it up. Because we'll go there. Is that okay? Can I talk to you like this? All right. It was nice seeing you for the very last time here at Restore Church. Um, and it's weird now in Hebrews 8 because all of a sudden it has this strange chunk of Scripture from Jeremiah chapter 31. How odd that we're talking about transition from an old covenant to a new covenant, from a copy and a shadow to the substance and the reality of Christ Jesus how odd then that it is grabbing an Old Testament reference. And so let's go look at it in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, one of my favorite prophets. It's amazing. He's called the weeping prophet, but he brought the strongest message. And I love him for it. Can't wait to meet him one day. I'm sorry, am I in...
I want to make sure that I'm in the right one. I think it should be Jeremiah 31. I think my notes say 3. should be 31. 31, that's probably where I got confused. 3131, I think I may have typed 331. Should be 3131. Says, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I'll make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll, I'll put my instructions deep within them. I'll write them on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. They will not need to teach their neighbors. They'll not need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord, and I'll forgive their wickedness and will never again remember their sins. It's mentioned here in the middle, smack dab in the middle of Hebrews chapter 8, because it speaks of the new covenant. And it's really, really important that we see the significance of the new covenant that we're under. And near the end here of Hebrews, in Hebrews 8.12, it is reemphasizing that again. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. See, the old versus the new and the old system sins were temporarily dealt with. Temporarily dealt with. In the new covenant, sins are forgiven and not remembered. If you've genuinely gone to God and you've asked the Father to forgive you, you're forgiven. And God doesn't remember it. He's not going to keep throwing it in your face. The devil throws your sins in your face. God doesn't. The devil's always reminding you of your past. God isn't. Haven't you ever been driving down the road and you remember one of those banner moments in your life and you're like, Ugh. sometimes I'll even out loud, Ugh. and Lisa will go, what? No, just, a, just another classic moment out of my life that the devil was reminding me of. Isn't it amazing how the devil reminds you of all the times that you blew it and he's always trying to whittle you down to nothing and the Holy Spirit reminds you of the things that God has spoken over your life, the scriptures that you've read. It's part of his ministry to call back to remembrance the things that Jesus said, things that Jesus did. Isn't it amazing how, you know, one is just so cringeworthy and the other so builds you up and so encourages. The enemy wants you forever in that place where you're like, oh, I can't believe I said that. And as a pastor, can you imagine now 21 years, how many times I've been driving down the road? Oh, I said that. Yes, nice. Can't believe I did that. Can't believe I said that. And the enemy is all too willing to throw you up. You are about a, you should probably, probably be leaving the ministry soon. You should, you know, you should be packing it in. Yeah, you're, you're probably the brightest bulb in the pack there, buddy. Um, so my dad would say an expression, they're a real dim bulb. My dad would say that all the time. And the enemy makes you feel like you are a dim bulb. But the Holy Spirit calls back to remembrance the good. The good. God's not bringing things that you brought to him asking forgiveness for back up to you again. When has anybody ever had a conversation with the Lord when they're all alone and the Lord said, look, you asked me to forgive you of this. And I, no one ever, I've never 
never, 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 in 35 years of walking with Jesus, never had anybody come up to me and say, God just reminded me of something that I had gone to him and asked forgiveness for. Why is God, why does he keep throwing those things in my face? God's not throwing it in your face. The things that are continually in your face are those things that you won't come to God with, the things that you won't ask forgiveness for, the things that you refuse to let go of, those things that are strongholds in your life, and he keeps bringing them to you so that you'll deal with them. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. Scripture says there's forgiveness with God so that he might be feared. Let's look at the Scripture on forgiveness, 1 John 1, 9. Many of you know it. It's probably a verse that you memorized early in your walk with God. I, let me read verse 8 because the context is amazing based on what we just talked about. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. Verse 9. But... If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Old covenant, those priests were always going in making atonement for people's sins, for theirs, for people. They'd bring blood with them. They'd offer incense. Under Jesus, his was the blood. His blood cleanses. And the blood of Jesus, it isn't like the blood of bulls and goats that the satanic and the demonic cults use as a mockery of Jesus' blood. No, 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 no. Jesus' blood cleanses once and for all. doesn't need to keep being shed. Jesus' blood doesn't need to keep being shed, no matter what ceremony you, 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 you use to, you know, Jesus, this is Jesus, who shed blood all over again. No, 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 once and for all. That's how powerful the blood of Jesus was. Once and for all. So that now, because of Jesus' shed blood, when we go to the Father and we ask for forgiveness, not only is he faithful and just, and that's powerful, faithful and just to forgive us, but cleanses us from all sin. When Jesus returns, what's going to be written on him? Faithful and true. God is faithful and just. Faithful and true. Pastor John, I don't know if I believe that God could really, really forgive me if I ask him to forgive me. Well, the issue is then with you because it's certainly not with God because he's faithful and just, faithful and true. And so many people struggle with not being able to forgive someone else or not being able to forgive themselves. I've known people that were mad at God because they felt like God allowed this to happen to a loved one. My God is faithful and just. He's perfect in all of his ways. And I know that us as human beings, or we as human beings, we struggle seeing that because we see our flaws. God, God's flawless. He's perfect. He doesn't need to change. He is perfection itself. Perfection itself. Remember last week we talked about how the perfect coming is going to be Jesus? And maybe today you're holding yourself hostage. Maybe the enemy's throwing coals on those moments in your life when you blew it. Maybe you have to look in the faces of individuals that remind you of how you blew it. And maybe they're still mad at you and they don't want to be around you because you caused them such pain. My God forgives. People might not. My God forgives. Not only does he forgive, not only is he faithful and just to forgive, but he cleanses from all wickedness, from all unrighteousness. He cleanses. God forgives, 
and God cleanses. That's how powerful forgiveness is with God. Before Jesus left this earth, in fact, end of John's gospel, if you'd go there with me real quick, I'll find it with you. The end of John's gospel. John 20, yeah. Resurrected Christ appearing to the disciples. I mean, just out of nowhere, Jesus would appear. He's got a resurrected body. Peace be with you. Of course he had to say that. You know, today's vernacular, hey, calm down. Don't be afraid. Notice what Jesus says. He breathed on them, said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says, if you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Why didn't Jesus teach this when he was walking and talking with her? Because he hadn't shed his blood yet. Jesus' blood was shed for the remission of sins once and for all. He hadn't shed his blood yet. Now, blood having been shed, he says, if you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Older versions don't say they're not forgiven. Older versions say they're retained. Forgiveness means to release. You either release or you retain. You're either a releaser or you're a retainer. And I guarantee where there's retention of what someone's done to you or what you just simply cannot forgive yourself for, there's a choking, there's a restricting, you've got a distorted picture of who God is. Freedom, freedom in Christ, please. I'm not free. I wasn't free when that was done to me, and I wasn't free when that was said of me, and I wasn't free. You're a releaser or you're a retainer. You retain people's sins or you release them. And today you can choose from your hearts, from the depths of who you are, from your guts, to forgive anyone for anything. Pastor, they're getting away from it. Before you, maybe it seems like that. Before God, no way. No way. Nobody's getting away with anything. All things are laid bare before God. God sees everybody's secret sins. And you would be surprised at how hanging on to what's been done or what's been said to you, how that can color you, how that can embitter you, how you're always trying to get people to buy into your offense. And today's a day where we need to forgive. The very first message that I ever preached in Ionia was on offense. Very first message. I remember it like it was yesterday. Very first message that God ever put on my heart for this area was offense, and I believe it's still an issue today. Well, I don't care. You can say what you want. Well, I'm not forgiving them. Well, then you're not going to be forgiven, according to Scripture. Matthew, I'll give you a couple Scriptures for it. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, then neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. Mark eleven twenty five. For whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven will forgive you. And we pray it in the Lord's Prayer, in the Our Father Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. We do not even have the right to go before God and ask for his forgiveness if we are choosing not to forgive.
That's biblical truth. And what you do with it and how you appropriate it and apply it, that's on you. I'm doing my job. Forgive them. If Jesus could say that of his murderers as he's dying on the cross, if Stephen could say that as his skull was being crushed in, as he's being stoned by his accusers, you can say it too. I choose this day to forgive. Forgive. I guarantee you I couldn't stand in this pulpit if I didn't know how to forgive, if I wouldn't forgive. I think it's more of a matter of the will than it is.